The following show is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Welcome to Discovering Responsible Wealth. This is Frank Congelos, your host. You know, this month is estate planning month, and we are proud to have Michael Canerick, partner in Canerick and Canerick. Here's our guest today. Michael, welcome. Um, you've been with our show a few times before, so it's always good to see you back. Welcome back, Mike. Thanks, Frank. Good to be here. So, Mike, you know, what's interesting is, you know, when we look at what's occurred over the last few years, we're at a point where very few people are concerned about estate taxes. You know, the exemptions are very high right now. Um, I'll have you address that in a second. But one of the things that we are seeing more of nowadays is people are really thinking in terms of how do they protect their life's work for the next generation or for a couple of generations and so forth uh, from what we call unfriendly creditors. And maybe we can just spend a little time on that. So maybe start out by Mike addressing you know, the fact why you know, state tax is not the issue at the moment, uh, although not a guarantee forever. And then we'll talk a little bit about how to protect assets long-term for families. Yeah, sure. I, I've definitely seen a shift in my business with uh, focus going from estate tax planning to, to other areas like the one that you're talking about. Um, so as the, re- the reason why the estate tax planning is sort of taking a backseat these days is because the exemption amounts, meaning the amount that you can leave to your family uh, without paying an estate tax, has gone up drastically in the last few years. Um, federally, there, there was two taxes. Federally, um, the exemption amount is now uh, $10 million plus inflation back to 2011. So the t- 2018 exemption is close to $11.2 million per person or $22.4 million per couple. So right now, you know, couples that have less than that don't really have much of an estate tax Which is 99.5% of the population because it's probably only top half percent that that's going to be applicable to. Yeah, that's correct. As you alluded to before, you know, these laws are never set in stone. I mean, I've been practicing law close to 20 years and the exemptions changed, you know, 10 times probably. But um, the current exemption is set to lower after 2025 back to 5 million plus inflation. So, um, you know, in theory it will drop, but but who knows what's going to happen because it's very political and there's as the president changes and Congress changes, the laws change as well. Um, the the other side of things is that New Jersey uh, always, at least since 2002, had an estate tax with a fairly low exemption. Um, it was six hundred seventy-five thousand dollars from 2002 to 2016, and then in 2017 the exemption was raised to two million dollars. And in starting this year, 2018, the New Jersey tax has been repealed altogether. So New Jersey estate taxes, which were an issue for a lot of people, uh, are no longer an issue for anybody. And I think that was New Jersey's attempt of stop, you know, help motivating people not to leave New Jersey when they retire and go to Florida or another state that's more tax friendly. Yeah, I think that, that there's definitely some truth to that. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the repeal of the New Jersey state tax is also never set in stone. You know, we have a governor now that seems to favor it, although he hasn't really raised the issue of putting it back. So we'll see. So, so now that we know from a tax standpoint, not necessarily an issue, 
you and I are both seeing more and more concern when we are planning families' estates. And, you know, when we talk about estates, it's everything you own. It's your house. It's your retirement accounts. It's your savings accounts, investments, uh, as well as your life insurance. And people are starting to look and they go, you know what? Some of these can be substantial, a million, two million dollars or more cumulatively. How do I protect that for my kids and my grandkids from, we call them unfriendly creditors. And yeah. the unfriendly creditors, you know, we look at as like, you know, what, what happens in the event of divorce? You know, it's like, you know, I want to take care of my kids and my grandkids, but in the event of divorce, how do I protect them? Or in the event of a lawsuit or anything like that. So maybe Mike address what we're seeing more and more nowadays. Yeah. So, so the, the idea of leaving assets to children and trusts, um, you know, has been utilized for a long time in connection with younger children. So we saw that all the time, you know. I leave assets and trust for my children because they're too young and, and I appoint, you know, whoever it is the trustee to watch over these assets. And then when the kid attains a certain age, you know, whether that be 25 or 30 or 35, the, the trust will terminate and the money can go to the kid and then they can control it and all that. Um, what we're seeing more of now, though, is, well, yeah, that, 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 that trust feature protects, you know, minor children from making bad decisions with money or younger children from making bad decisions with money. But but what happens, you know, when they're older and we've now taken the trust away because they hit whatever age we put in there um, and somebody is attempting to get at the money. The biggest concern people have, and rightly so, is divorce, right? Divorce rates are very high. Um, And using trusts and not ending them at a certain age but keeping them going uh, causes assets to be protected in a variety of events including a divorce Um, you mentioned other ones lawsuit or creditor problems or anything you know holding assets and trust keep them protected in in all these situations now historically you know when people would think in terms of trust you know they would think oh that means I got to go to you know the attorney or I got to go to some bank trustee and ask for permission to get my money. I know that attorneys like yourself, Michael, have been very creative in how they're drafting documents that actually provide for a lot of flexibility nowadays that that's not necessarily the case anymore. Yeah, that's right. So trustee selection, um, normally when if a child is younger, you know, obviously we recommend um, some th- a third-party trustee, but the third party doesn't need to be a lawyer or a bank. It could be, you know, a brother or a friend or a right. uh, family member. And, um, and, and that works well for a while, but clients always say, okay, well, if I'm going to keep these trusts going for, for my child's entire lifetime, you know, you know for all the, the reasons that we talked about before, the creditor protection, um, you know, there is going to come a point where it's kind of ridiculous that my 40-year-old child has to go to their 75-year-old uncle to get permission to use the money. So to combat that issue, what we can do is cause a child to become the trustee of his or her own trust so that they're not having to go to some third party to, you know, to make investment decisions and management decisions. Um, serving as the trustee of your own trust does uh, harm the the creditor protection advantages created by the trust. But then to combat that issue, what we can do is have an independent trustee appointed uh, that would have to approve any distributions. And we can allow the beneficiary child 
to determine who that independent trustee that's going to be approving distributions is. And, and that really gives child complete de facto control over the trust, um, even though there's technically this independent trustee involved that, that would approve distributions. So, so by, you know, the way that uh, some of the documents are being drafted today by attorneys by, like yourself who are, you know, very creative, um, they're getting the trust protection, but they're still getting the flexibility and the freedom to have the trust managed and distributed in such a way that they would really like because they can act as one as their own trustee. And in addition to that, they would have a secondary trustee, which is chosen by that beneficiary as well. So effectively, I get to pick someone that I like and that I can work with very well. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and uh, I just want to raise another point that, that clients like about using these lifetime trusts in addition to the creditor protection, because the assets are held in trust, it's the client that determines who the remainder beneficiary of the trust is, meaning, you know, what happens, okay, I set up a trust for my child, and now the child dies, where does that money in the trust go? Um, with di- you know, differently than had you left the money directly to the child, where the money would go how the child directs it in his or her will, now the money goes how the trust directs it. And generally speaking, clients will set up the trust to direct that it goes to that child's children or the client's grandchildren. Um, and, and clients really like that because it keeps the money that they leave behind. You know, if their children don't use it all to enjoy during their lifetime, that, it, that they make sure that it ends up in the hands of a grandchild as opposed in the hands of an in-law um, or somebody else. Great, great insight, and I and I also see that if they didn't, you know, if they didn't have kids, it might go to the other siblings. Yes, you know, so it stays exactly right. in that family's Blood wealth. Off. Yes, for the most part. So that was a great insight on you know some of what's going on there currently, and then the last two documents that I always like to remind people that they should be doing is and maybe just address these, which is you know why do a power of attorney, uh, why do the living will, and just addressing that when they meet with someone like yourself, Mike, that does this every day. You know, normally you're doing, I call it the package, which is they're doing the will, they got the trust inside of the will, unless they do a separate one, and then they've got living will, power of attorney. So maybe just highlight on that as we wrap up. Yeah, I basically don't let clients do wills with me without doing these other two ancillary documents, the power of attorney and the living will slash, you know, appointment of a healthcare proxy. Um, You know, real quick, a power of attorney would be a document where you appoint somebody to act on your behalf if the, in the event you were unable to act for yourself. Um, you know, I, I'll have clients put that in whenever I do a will for them, even if they're in their 30s or 40s, because if you try to wait until you can no longer act for yourself, well, now you don't have the right to do the, to sign the document to create the situation. And then a court would need to get involved and a guardianship proceeding would need to take place. And it's it's really that's a that's a major undertaking as opposed to signing a very simple power attorney document. So um, to me, that's a no-brainer to do that. And then, of course, on the medical side, uh, most clients uh, would like to express their desire not to be kept alive artificially in the event there was no hope of recovery. Like clients that are in a vegetative state, um, you know, don't want to continue to receive medical care to stay in that vegetative state. So um, you know, we we do living wills to reflect that in addition to appointing uh, someone to make medical decisions on behalf of the client. So it's, it's, it's two separate 
A lot of times people might appoint the same person to make legal and financial decisions under the power of attorney as they would the medical decision maker under the healthcare proxy, but it's two different positions and it may, may or may not make sense to have it be the same person. And then um, as we are wrapping up, because I was going to wrap up there and I was thinking to myself, you know, I should at least bring up the one last thing, which is when someone does the type of documents that Michael's describing, it's important that all of the other assets with regard to ownership and beneficiary arrangements that they coordinate with the will. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of misses that I see in the estate planning world and reviewing uh, you know, plans and documents put together by, by others. But uh, the, you know, this is possibly the biggest miss of all. Um, you know, the, the will controls the, the distribution of some of your assets, but not necessarily all of your assets. So if you've taken the time to put a plan together and, and, and do a will then, and include these trusts that we've been talking about, and then you don't coordinate that with the assets that aren't going to pass pursuant to the will, well, you know, you've only done partial planning. You haven't done a whole planning. So, for example... You know, the biggest one we tend to see is life insurance and retirement accounts. Those pass pursuant to a beneficiary designation. So you might have decided, hey, I want, I really like this whole trust idea that you talk that you're talking about. Let's do a will and we'll we'll set it up so that the money goes into the trust for the kids. But then on the life insurance beneficiary designation, you've named the kids and you didn't mention the trust or anything like that. Well, the life insurance company doesn't really care what your will says and that you've set up trust and all that. You know, the child's the beneficiary. The child gets a check. And, and you lose the uh, the planning that you've done in, in connection with those assets. Very good. So for all of our uh, listeners, you've been listening to Discovering Responsible Wealth. Again, our guest today was Michael Kanarek of Kanarek & Kanarek over in Wall Township. And this has been Frank Congelos. And we wish you a great month. And we look forward to catching up with you next month. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Frank. Advisors of the Institute of Responsible Wealth may be licensed for investment and insurance products. The Institute of Responsible Wealth is an educational division of CNA Financial Group. CNA Financial Group and its advisors are an agency or an agent of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. The Institute of Responsible Wealth and CNA Financial Group are not affiliates or subsidiaries of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation.